over the course of many, many years, we've hardly lost any money in damages in student rental property. So I would not turn away from uh, the thought of, you know, thinking about getting into this niche market yourself. Another thing that you might want to be aware of, yes, some of the larger universities are harder to get into in terms of just starting this, but you don't have to be across the street from campus to make this happen. Welcome to the Good Stewards Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to seasoned real estate investors who want to maximize the cash flow potential in their business. We are buy and hold investors with a thousand plus properties and markets across the US who bring an insider's view into the nitty gritty details of real estate investing. If you're looking to develop the mindset, teams, and systems that can dramatically build your real estate business and net worth, you're in the right place. Welcome to this episode of the Good Stewards Podcast. I'm Ryan Dossey. I'm Amanda Perkins. I'm Bill Sirius. And I'm Andrew Sirius. Hello, Good Stewards. There's a handful of different strategies for owning and managing rentals near universities and more expensive markets. We've got a large student rental portfolio here in Oregon, and they're at a different life stage than, say, the tenants of a corporate rental or maybe a house hack approach. We've developed a very tight, yearly, systemized process around our student rental portfolio. That said, there's a lot of variables different than the way you would manage a typical single family. Uh, We're going to dive in deep today and kind of go over how stewardship handles this and how we've kind of made it our business. Um, Before we dive in, we want to connect with you. Please visit us at thegoodstewards.com to subscribe to the podcast and get your free copy of our ebook. Um, I'm kind of going to turn it over to Bill right from the start because this student housing portfolio that we have in mostly Eugene, Oregon, but in a couple other places is really his baby and something that he started back in August of 1989. Uh, Saying started is a little bit like I had a strategy, which is a real misnomer because I tripped over myself and fell into this market by accident almost. I was a campus pastor actually. And so I like students. I hung around students. I was comfortable with students and I basically, um, transitioned into being a real estate investor because I saw at one point, I was 35 at the time that uh, I wasn't going to do student ministry for the rest of my life. So what was I going to do? And and real estate at the moment seemed like a good option. Uh, my story has been told in other places. But uh, what I found uh, as I tripped into it was that I, I bought a property that had the potential of adding bedrooms to it, had a really nice basement, but the basement was totally unutilized. And so my thought was, gosh, if I could add a couple of bedrooms down here and and redo the bathroom, which was kind of a mess, I could probably increase the rental value from a three-bedroom house into a five-bedroom house. It was just a block away from campus. A family had owned it for 50 years, and it was just a family, you know, a family uh, home. But uh, using those extra two bedrooms increased the rental value tremendously. And so, you know, I kind of thought after I did it, yeah, you know, I could do that again because increasing the rental value increased the, the value of the house in general, which allowed me to refinance it and use the Burr method to pull my money out and to do it again. After I did it again, I could realize I could do it again. As a matter of fact, in the process, it wasn't long till I thought about buying my own house. I was renting at the time and, uh, 
my wife, Teresa, was, uh, shall we say, uh, encouraging me to do that and, and having a place of our own. But my criteria was that I could find a place that had a rental in it or I could make into a rental. And this was kind of a bit of a house hacking thing. I found a property that that we were able to kind of turn around and, and make part of it into an apartment. And to this day, for the last 20 some years, 25 years, uh, it's been a two bedroom student rental that is in our house. It's fortunately on the side of our house in a way that we don't uh, have a, we have a separate entrance and all that. So it uh, again, it's just about adding rental value, and I bet I want, among- I want to highlight that real quick, yeah. Because I know some people that are like, "Oh, like house hacking is beneath me," <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> um, you know, Bill. I, I've actually stayed with Bill, and uh, to his credit, he's absolutely correct. You, if you're in the house, you cannot tell that there are tenants there at all. Um, you know, separate parking, separate entrances. Um, very, very cool. Uh, I think, you know, it's fortunate that Teresa was on board. I know some spouses <laughs> may not be, but well, going I from just, a rental to actually owning your own place, she was on board with that. So we kind of split there's there a little bit of compromise. There was a compromise there. Yeah. Yeah. So well, that I just good. want to throw one little tidbit out before we move on. Cause I think this is very interesting. That first house bill that you bought in 1989, I believe you paid right around $80,000 for it. And it had a garage in it or a a detached garage that you reformed into this three bedroom, three bathroom house that is a wonder. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's really interesting. Because because it's a 20 by 20, two story. So it's 800 square foot, three bedroom, three bath property. It is probably if I have anything to have pride over, this is the one thing because it lacks uh, what you uh, don't want to put in houses. It lacks hallways, every piece of square footage possible other than a stairway going up the second floor is utilized. So it is, it is a fun and, property. And you tested the human limits of, you know, how many <laughs> sardines you can fit in a can. So <laughs> you certainly found some interesting, some, you know, comfortable size closets to turn into bedrooms over here. <laughs> well, they did call me at one point bedroom bill, which, uh, was kind of a moniker I picked up because I could see nicknames. a, I could see a bedroom where, <laughs> where no one else could. <laughs> That could mean way worse things, though. So at least that's real estate related. Uh, Some of those bedrooms are closets, let's be honest. But what I wanted to finish, so I believe you paid about $80,000. And I think all said and done, you've put roughly $175,000 into things. And obviously, over 30 years, there's been capital improvements and remodels. Mm -hmm. And that property... Uh, gross rents a month, uh, depending on the year, usually between six and $7,000 a month between the front house that has seven bedrooms and the three bedroom, three bath, whatever we call it a quad knot in, it's just a little joke in our office, but the last appraisal five years ago, it was appraised at $950,000. So that was able to be pulled out obviously over 30 years and, reallocated in different markets for us to do that. And it cash flows with the debt on it as it is. So, you know, don't you wish you would have taken an assignment fee for like five grand instead? (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of the point what Ryan is saying. You want to try to hold on to as many properties as you can. So you want to use the Burr method, which is buy, rehab, 
rent, refinance, and repeat. So you obviously want to do that on as many properties as you can hold on to. But the question is, how in the world can you hold on to some of these properties and get your money out when you get around to uh, refinancing? And that's kind of brings us back to uh, the beginning here. And that's increasing rental value is the key. Any way, shape, form you can, including house hacking, uh, creating an apartment in your own place, uh, a group home. We can talk a little bit more of that. Student rentals. Anything you can do to increase rental value allows you to hold on to properties over time. And that is the key. So that, uh, that first house turned into many. And over the last 30 years in uh, Eugene specifically, you've acquired quite an assortment of campus houses, campus apartments, and we have really fine-tuned our property management to run that campus rental market as efficiently as possible. It's a different mindset to manage uh, the campus stuff than it is to manage the market stuff. It's very cyclical. Uh, There's a huge amount of turnover, so you have to build all of that in. And it's a process that you're basically working on for the whole year. Um, so you often, so our, we do one year leases with our student rentals. We normally, uh, sign a joint and several lease for everyone. We don't often rent by the room unless it comes down to the very end and it would be beneficial for us to break out rooms and rent them individually. For the most part, when we are signing our leases for, um, houses, apartments with more than one resident, they're signing on the dotted line together. They're all responsible together. They're moving in as a group together. They're moving out as a group together. So we start our process right after Thanksgiving. So right between Thanksgiving and winter break, we send out our lease renewal letters for our residents to make a decision about if they're going to be moving out the following summer or fall or if they're going to be renewing, because we have to give them time to think about it. We give them over winter break, maybe to talk to their housemates, talk to their parents who are oftentimes their co-signers. Very important part of the whole process is are their co-signers and give them time to decide what they're going to do. And by the end of January, we're asking them to either sign a new lease or, you know, make sure that we know they're moving out. And our timeline is usually right around the first week of February. We hit the ground running with renting up our houses for the following school year. We've seen some, uh, I would say, amateur student rental uh, landlords who wait. And in our market, as is many markets that is very competitive because uh, developers have come in and just built a ton of units. So there's lots of competition now in the student rental marketplace. That doesn't mean, and we can talk a little bit more about this, that you can't find in, a way to niche into this market. But um, some of the folks who are kind of have one or two rentals, they might wait till the fall. Students are coming back and then they'll put their properties on the market. I see a couple of for rent signs still from last fall that have not have gone unrented because of that lack of strategy in anticipating, you know, that rent up period. That can oftentimes work for the onesie twosies for the one bedroom or the two bedroom apartments. But what we are seeing is to be honest, starting in October, the year, you know, like right after students have moved in, there's certain houses. And at one point 
we were in, we had three of our three of five in the top five party houses for the University of Oregon campus, which actually <laughs> isn't anything, to, <laughs> which isn't anything to brag about because that comes with its own set of problems. Um, but they were coming in in October asking to rent houses that they'd been in parties at, and you know we'll go through and see where our leads came from, and it's like, well, I was at a party or I was here, and. You know, for Moral better or worse. story, make party houses. <laughs> it's free advertising. So, does the weed is the weed supplied as part of the lease, or is that <laughs> that? And by the way, that is our niche market is actually sophomores and juniors, and if we can hang on to them, seniors uh, is is our niche niche market because uh, students are living in the dorm as freshmen because they have to now at the University of Oregon, and I'm not sure about Oregon State where we also have a couple of rentals. But uh, Andrew, you actually did that. You were a you were a dorm student way back when, uh, in the late two thousands, right? And then the you moved early into odds. yeah, <laughs> you moved into a campus rental property. Which uh, I don't know how was that transition for you uh, from dorm to well, it was nice to have more than you know twelve square feet of living space. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I went from from dorm to apartment and then to a large house. I, I preferred the the apartments actually. The large house was just too many people stuffed together. It was like a miniature frat. Um, but I mean, it's, that is kind of, you know, I think I'm a little bit, not the normal. I mean, there's all sorts of people for college. So it's like, you get a lot of, uh, a lot of people want to live in these big, big houses. And, uh, honestly to keep the parties down, just the, the less, uh, and you've seen this a lot with your, um, with your big houses, the room, the, the bedrooms are kept nice the the common areas are destroyed. They're just like they're nuked from from orbit or from college <laughs> students. Well, we're not necessarily expecting that, but that does <laughs> that does lead to one thing, and that is to try to cut down on the living cut space. Down, yes. So put them in, t- think of them like barracks. Just like you just throw them in there <laughs> and <laughs> stuff them in their little uh, in their corner. Well, what one thing Don't I let would them tell you socialize <laughs> <laughs> is any formal. Dining rooms you can grab as bedrooms do so because that's not only another bedroom to rent, it cuts down on the living space and the party space. And these re- students are not hosting Thanksgiving at their house. <laughs> their <laughs> family is place not to kegs. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys, you guys had mentioned um, that you a group basically decides we're going to rent together and they approach you guys on one of the properties, which was which is news for me. I was under the impression you actually did buy the bedroom. So on the leases, how does that work? Is it the group as a whole is responsible for paying four thousand, or is it 100%. four people that are each responsible for so paying a thousand? Nope, it's they're all responsible, and oftentimes they'll make agreements. You know, sometimes sometimes there's a master bedroom and somebody's paying more, and you know, and somebody has the kid room that fits a twin bed, and but. Those are all the, agreements the closet, they work out. The ex-closet room. Those is, uh, are agreements they work out between themselves. We do not get involved with that. And if somebody moves out, that's not our responsibility to figure out how they're going to pay their rent. They, you know, if they want to move somebody in, they, we have to be notified. But we aren't. Uh, we aren't calling individual student residents and saying well, you forgot to pay your rent, you know, it's their whole house is responsible and we're not tracking down 
them Do you guys typically have like a like a house mom or a house dad, like a main point of contact, or is that just kind of something they figure out on their own? We ask somebody to take the role of house manager so that okay. that person is responsible for reporting maintenance, uh, if there's issues with payments, if we have to do showings, because that, that basically leads us into our next thing. You know, we get to February 1st, we roll out our next availability list, and we have to start renting. And what that also means is we have to start showing occupied properties. And hopefully we only have to show them a couple of times, but by June, if we've had somebody's house on the market since February, we're trying our best to only maybe bug them once a week and try to groups because they get tired of it. And honestly, one of the things that we have them do, we have them sign an addendum that's part of their lease that indicates when they move in that there will be this showing process that happens so that they're aware of it. And 99% of them, they don't even care. They don't clean up. They don't do their dishes. They don't put their bongs away. They don't do anything. You know, and we have, you know, we have a representative from our company that is always accompanying a group. And we've had very little issue dealing with that. They just, they're fine with it. They kind of understand the process. They know what needs to happen. And, you know, so then, so we spend that time renting up. So then by the, by the time we get to, June, I would say right after mid-June when school's out, we kind of start our turnover. We've tried to stagger them. When I first came into the company 10 years ago, uh, most of them were actually either a June 15th move out or an August 31st move out. And that was really, really difficult. What that meant was most of the houses were all being moved out on the same day. And we only had a limited amount of resources to turn you know, in some, some years, if nobody renews 40 houses and 40 campus houses is a lot different than 43 bedroom, one bath houses that a couple lived in, you know, these are well lived in. So over the last 10 years, we've staggered the move outs so that our turnover runs from mid June through right before school starts in September. And so we have we're, you know, our project managers going in, identifying big projects that need to happen. We're scheduling all of that. We're oftentimes scheduling cleaning, painting, carpet cleaning, all the things that we know are for sure going to have to happen. We're getting those all lined out before anyone ever moves out. We're getting that, the, that work assigned out because it's, it's a big process. Well, and what that's helped our company just in general with our other just normal campus or excuse me, normal rental properties for families, we become very efficient because we've had to being forced with the campus schedule and students in and out, you know, so if we're going in ahead of time and, you know, looking at walls that need to be painted and, uh, you know, things that are uh, doors that are need to be replaced and so forth. And we're having all that figured out before they even move out. And then we're on it the day they move out kind of thing. Boy, it's it's really helped us not lose rental days. And every single day, one of these, you know, $4,000 to $6,000 houses is unrented is a huge amount of loss for us. But it's also a huge amount of loss for you as well if you have a rental property that's sitting there during turnover unrented. So just trying to hone your efficiency in general, this has really helped us think totally efficiently. Every single day lost is a day of rent lost. So what can we do to squeeze that amount of time that we're doing turnover to the minimum? We basically so I've got a, I've allow... i got a question. Oh, go ahead. Um, so... 
in indie, we've worked on trying to make our properties a little bit more resilient. Um, by that, we're typically like not doing ceiling fans anymore. We're going more like, you know, cam lighting, granite, uh, vinyl plank flooring. One of the things you mentioned is, you know, these aren't exactly gently used <laughs> properties. So is there anything you guys are doing, um, you know, that, that makes these a little bit more robust than say a, a typical property that goes to a family that may be helpful for our listeners? We would bulletproof them if we could, to be honest, but yes, like I mean, concrete floor. Basic, no, we don't, <laughs> but we do, um, a lot of hardwoods. We basically try to do no carpet in main areas, including stairs, because basically it gets replaced every single year. Carpet is like a rug apparently. And too many spills, too many everything. And so as little carpet as we can do, we only mostly do carpet in bedrooms. As we've, uh, you know, needs with students and what they want, they are, some of them are, I mean, I don't, want to be disparaging a little bit spoiled and they come they're accustomed to what they had at home. So they're wanting that in their rental. So we've had to, we've had to up our game with that updating kitchens, bathrooms, all that sort of thing, putting in the nicer flooring, the nicer countertops, surfaces, uh, stainless steel appliances, uh, more bathrooms, you know, so, and we have to pre-plan those upgrades because we nor on a normal turnover, we give ourselves seven to 10 days to get in and out. So if we want to do a kitchen, we give ourselves two weeks and that's it. And so we have to have that contractor lined out, ready to go. The, you know, the floor plan mapped out. We're always constantly upgrading a little bit. We have our projects that we're identifying so that we can you know, keep with the changing market. Uh, in our, we've built some new stuff recently on some lots that Bill owned in a really prime location. And with those houses, we put en suites in every single bedroom. So every bedroom has a bathroom and Very the cool. bedrooms are really nice and large and have decks and all kinds of stuff. And they're, you know, they're really sought after. It's really easy to keep them rented because they're just really amazing, you know, rentals. But a lot of that is just the needs of the students have changed the way that students look for things. It's, uh, it's just, things have changed over the years and we have to adapt. Uh, a lot of the new construction too, that's in around the university of Oregon is like three bed, four bed, one bath apartments. And so that's just oh. very, well, it might be two uh, bath or, or so, but uh, maybe, uh, maybe they get a second one. Uh, yeah. But yeah, very, very simple drab construction. And, and so, yeah, I mean, when very you're in an overcrowded market, you need to have some sort of yeah. uh, competitive advantage. Well, and one thing in Eugene specifically, and we noticed this uh, during the last recession, you know, there wasn't a lot of new construction happening, but a lot of people were flocking back to school. And what that meant is there were no real housing needs outside of the campus area, but developers came in and discovered, oh gosh, there's a ton to be built in, you know, right around the University of Oregon. And they were tearing down houses and doing anything they could to put up big structures. And we were, we're fine with that, obviously, but it's not necessarily our model. But what that's done is made a lot of our houses more valuable because a lot, a lot of older houses that were prime campus houses got torn down to put bigger stuff up. And so we've just tried to make our houses nicer and more upgraded as needed to kind of attract that 
uh, whoever's You guys have a slogan for that, don't you? Isn't it like, you know, live in a home. Live in a home. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, a couple of things. One is that we don't really disparage student residents at all because albeit, you know, this is a more immature time of life for all of us. Many of them do treat our properties well. Now, the nice thing about owning student rentals is that the ones that don't also have their parents as co-signers like everybody else. So not only is five students severally and jointly liable for the property and its condition, the same is true of five different groups of parents. So over the course of many, many years, we've hardly lost any money in damages in student rental property. So I would not... I would not turn away from uh, the thought of you, you know, thinking about getting into this niche market yourself. Another thing that you might want to be aware of, yes, some of the larger universities are harder to get into in terms of just starting this, but you don't have to be across the street from campus to make this happen. So you can be, you know, I call that the A, A circle. Then there's the B circle that's maybe within walking distance. And there's the C circle. It's when biking distance, then the D circle maybe is in driving distance, but there's still concentric circles around a campus and you could go farther out, get a better deal on the property, maybe even buy it from a a family as a family home that you turn into a campus rental. And that for many, many times has been our niche within the niche that we're buying a little farther away from campus because the stuff that you can see campus from is exorbitantly expensive. But you can do the same thing in terms of adding rental value to the stuff that's a little farther away. Maybe you drop the price slightly uh, to do so, but you still have that campus connection that allows you for the rent value increase over time. And by the way, many of these Midwestern small campus, private campus markets, I think are being overlooked by people. I don't know, Amanda, if you'd want to talk a little bit about uh, one of our markets that we're in. It's very close to home. Bill would call it the Harvard <laughs> of the Midwest, his mm, alma there's mater. There's nothing there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Emporia, <laughs> Emporia State University in Emporia, Kansas. Yeah, my wife and I met and uh, went there, graduated with uh, honors, I think it was, or with something, at least with a degree. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> well, and big so- plug for Emporia State. We have a, a buy and hold business there. And we're not focusing on campus there, but we are definitely buying stuff and trying to target a student a rental market there because, you know, it's there's a lot of houses close in to the campus that have been previously maybe rented by families or singles and the, the, they're good places for us to house students. And if we target that student market, it's maybe not as competitive as say our Eugene market or our Corvallis, Oregon markets, but we still can see a couple hundred dollars uh, flux up in cash flow a month uh, if we target a student audience. So you might, you know, you could ask yourself like, how could I take this kind of a model maybe to make it work for myself. Uh, we've, you know, we're in a couple different places and there's universities nearly everywhere. And for us, the campus market we feel like is kind of geared more to like a smaller college town, but you know, that doesn't mean that you couldn't do it in other markets, but you know, if we say we go to, we're in Kansas city and there's some universities more in the, um, in the downtown area, 
it's hard to distinguish between what would be campus housing in the downtown and what would be just downtown living. So it hasn't really translated exactly the same, but there's a lot of markets around the country that would work really well for a campus type of a strategy if that's what you were wanting to do with your business. Well, yeah, I mean, our intention wasn't to get into student housing in Kansas City, but, you know, play by ear if we found it. Generally, most of the universities in Kansas City itself are smaller or commuter schools or trade schools, um, like like if community colleges or trade schools are almost always commuter schools. People don't necessarily live close to them and they're not going to pay a premium for them. So there's not, you're not, it's not really student housing. Um, there was there is a uh, the University of Missouri Kansas City does have some student housing, but it's already discovered. It's already expensive. Um, so we you know we played around with some parts kind of near Rockers University, the small college. Uh, but it was sort of on the wrong side of the university. And, it, it, you know, that's another big thing. I mean, we looked at a, an apartment complex in Lawrence, Kansas, where the University of Kansas is. And there's an apartment complex that was sort of low-income housing. And the thought was, like, maybe we can change it to, uh, to student rentals. But, like, when you look at the demographics there, the students all live to the east, west, south, or north of the campus, not to the south. And so you need to look at where the students are and whether it's the type of school that students actually live near. And, you know, they don't generally live near or they don't pay a premium to live near uh, a, a community college, many small colleges, trade schools. And also, regardless of whether it is a community, uh, even if it is, you know, a, a campus where students live very close to it, they don't always live. They don't live in a circle around it. They often live just in certain parts. One thing, though, when you say they don't necessarily live in a circle around it, but it would be very hard to predict. But I will say with the University of Oregon specifically, the east side of campus did not used to be the side of campus that people lived on. But then the house that Nike built came in and they built this beautiful, uh, amazing basketball arena, Matt Knight Arena. Go and Ducks. all of a sudden it was the arena district and it had a name and they've been building big housing complexes on the east side and pulling that more in. And that now that is a more desired location to live. And there's restaurants there and they're bringing more things in, but that's sort of as the school grew and also a lot of money got dumped right at the east end of campus. So that kind of worked out. I think that's one good reason to subscribe to like your local business journal. If you're a real estate investor, um, you know, in Indiana, we have the Indie Business Journal and it kind of lets you know about those kinds of things when they're in the early phases of this is being talked about. This is starting to grow. You can kind of keep a pulse on things. Um, Bill and I own a decent chunk of stuff in a kind of small satellite uh, town off of Indianapolis. And one of the reasons we chose to buy so much there is there was a lot of inklings of tax credits and then they got a grant to redo their downtown. And it's it's not something that you would have seen, you know, on like, you know, your your local news when you were watching. It's something you've got to be subscribed to like a local business journal to kind of get those insights for. It's, it's something the path you have to... of progress right. is what you're looking for. So you, you put that phrase in your mind, whether it's, uh, you know, student rental uh, kind of path of progress or in general, the... Value, value add, where you see a lot of remodeling going on, where you see people starting to tear down properties and rebuild, you know, oh, they, they know something that's going on there. They're not just sticking their money out the door for no reason. They're, they're, they've figured it out. So look for the path of progress. 
One thing I would be careful about, there are some private universities that are going out of business. And the reason is, is because the demographics are not real favorable right now to increasing student populations. There's one in Concordia University in uh, Portland just went out of business uh, and it had 5,000 students or so. So you got to, you got to kind of have your hand on the pulse of the situation and be careful that that's not your only option in renting this property. Uh, if you're around a campus that might you know, might be vulnerable to that kind of situation. We ran into that in Anderson, Indiana. The uh, school called us, I think, a year ago and wanted to sell like 140 units uh, plus one of their dorms. And it was like, there's nothing else in this town but you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so if you guys are selling, I don't want anything here. <laughs> so that is the right. Thing. And that's, I mean, that's a topic for another discussion, but it really, people are not wanting to, especially with the private universities, they're not wanting to graduate with a four-year degree and $200,000 of student loan debt. So, you know, things, times are changing, but the public university systems are usually a pretty safe bet because they tend to be affordable and something that you can come out of a call, you know, you can come out with a degree and not six figures of debt if you do it right. So, you know, that's what's worked well for us. And I mean, Bill would probably say again, he stumbled into it, but it, I think my favorite thing with this strategy is the parent co-signers. Uh, you know, you, you have the ability to literally like throw them under the bus to the group of their parents. When I was in Eugene one time, I was watching one of your guys's property managers work and there was a building that hadn't paid yet. And she just CC'd all the parents along with the kids <laughs> and said, you know, Hey, your rent still hasn't come in yet. Um, and it was like, you know, paid immediately because <laughs> one of the parents is like, this is not going on my credit. Say you've acquired uh, something that you wanted to target for, a, you know, kind of take it out of your residential family dwelling and sort of target it towards a campus. The first thing you want to do is make sure that it's going to be coming available in line with when school, when the school year is. You know, you're not going to you're not going to be able to end the family's lease in March and expect to get it rented in April to a student group. So you need to be mindful of that. Fine tune your lease. Our lease has so many things in it and extra addendums, much to Bill's chagrin. But <laughs> you really need a lot of these students come into a place and maybe they haven't plunged a toilet or changed a light bulb or changed a battery in a smoke detector. Been out on their own. Or know to turn the fan on in the bathroom so that there's some airflow. We spell out details in the leases so that, you know, they can know what they're, that what they're expecting. And we sit down and we basically, their lease signing is a bit of a counseling of here's how you pay your rent. This is what we expect from you. These are all the things that you need to do. This is when you call us. This is when you don't ever in doubt, call us, let us deal with it because they don't know they're, you know, they're not, they're adults, but they're kids. They've come from their parents' house and some parents don't, ask their kids to do very much. So, you know, maybe they don't know how to take care of a house, you know, and this is a big responsibility. So, you know, we really spell it out, make sure you're marketing yourself to students. Uh, you know, we used to sometimes do dorm mailers or Facebook ad ads targeting students and, you know, advertising in the student newspaper. There's there are online programs that are endorsed by the university that we're a part of. You know, we really are trying, you just want to try to, if this is what you're going to do, 
you want the students to know you as a property management company that has student rental so that they're coming to you um, more than just the advertising. And then, of course, we do all of the online advertising and the and Craigslist ads, every single place that we can be, we're doing that. And we're advertising well in advance. And they know that this is a campus property. We're really spelling that out so that we're trying to make it easy for them to find us and find our rentals. I would also say, um, just as somebody whose wife's in college still, there's typically Facebook groups for universities with their students. So being able to find one of them and get them to share it in that group because they're typically closed communities. But I know every school my wife was at, she was in a you know private Facebook group with everybody else in her year that I think you can almost kind of like Trojan horse your way into you know, Craigslist ad, Hey student, you want to make a hundred bucks, <laughs> you know, uh, could, could be a, a, not such a bad idea to even just a, Hey, has anybody looked at this or, you know, kind of doing it in a way that's not like, Oh, you should check out this rental, but that would be a really good way to get in front of your target market for very little money. Yeah. And as you're starting out, you're maybe just going to have one, you know, property that you're transitioning to a student rental or one that you find that would work well. You know, over time, you, you when I try to get to the economy of scale. So if you start down this road, I would suggest that you do try to get a group, a portfolio of student rental properties because you will that will help you to get into the the ethos of the student mindset because you're doing everything for this particular demographic and like lawn care. We we do uh you know, our own lawn care. So we're not expecting a student to haul down a, a lawn mow, mowing machine with them as they come to campus. Or you know, there's certain weeds things because they're absolutely not going to, <laughs> the, you know, as Amanda talked about the student schedule, you got to be very on top of that. We're in Emporia. We, uh, uh, completed a property that we actually had to wait a few months. Uh, but it was such a great transition from a family home to a student rental. It was worth us to lose a few months of rent to get into the student schedule situation. Uh, it, it just was because we could increase the rent that much more. And again, if you're, if you're targeting these, uh, these, this specific niche market, think, think like a student, even go on campus, talk to students. What do you like? What do you want? Um, and, and I think you'll overall, you'll be glad that you did. If you can get a portfolio of these properties together. We are going to wrap up for today. As you can tell, we're fairly passionate about this as it's served us well and our business well. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. If you liked what you heard, remember to subscribe and share the podcast and get your free copy of our ebook. Visit thegoodstewards.com for more info. Connect with us and submit any questions or topics you'd like us to talk about. See you next week. Mm-hmm.